Hello and welcome to the Money, Mind, and Meaning podcast. Uh, it's me, your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Thank you for being here today. Uh, this is being recorded in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, but by the time you're hearing this, I will be in Western Canada. So excited to be uh, checking out a new place and spending the summer in Calgary. So uh, today we're going to talk about whether investing is a game of luck or skill. So it goes without saying that if you're a hedge fund manager, say, that your job is to generate large returns or at least large risk-adjusted returns. But imagine for a moment that I've created a new, uh, a new title, that you have a job where your job is to do just the opposite. Your job is to create a portfolio designed to do as poorly as possible. So where would you begin to assemble such a monstrous creation? Well, you might begin by violating some of the foundational assumptions of evidence-based investing by having an undiversified portfolio, uh, or say, just holding a handful of stocks, five stocks. You might further throw a wrench in the works by purchasing stocks with high valuations, which the research shows us uh, have done poorly over long periods of time. You might also look for securities that are thinly traded. But despite your best efforts to create a stinky portfolio, it is entirely possible that this dumpster fire would in fact perform very well. Think about it. Holding just a few stocks does increase your chances of underperformance, but it simultaneously increases your chances of outperforming a benchmark. Buying expensive stocks has tended to be a poor decision over long periods of time, but in the short run, it's indicative of high hopes for the future. Try as you might, it is entirely possible that even the most haphazardly slapped together group of holdings could in fact perform very admirably. Now, daydream with me that you are charged with performing as poorly as possible in a game of chess. Not so hard, is it? In fact, if you're like me, getting destroyed at chess is the easy part, and it would be performing well that would be difficult. When considering whether a task is one of primarily luck or skill, Michael Mobusan suggests that we do the very thing we just attempted. We try to fail on purpose. Games of luck are hard to fail on purpose. You could win at roulette despite your best efforts to the contrary. But winning a game of skill is much easier to throw intentionally. All of this leads us to the question, is investing primarily a game of luck or skill, and what are the implications for how we make investment decisions? So Professor Aswath Damodaran, whose name I've surely butchered, uh, adds two additional conditions to Mobison's test of luck versus skill. Uh, for, for the professor, success requires both clear definitions and measurement over a ro robust number of trials. In skill-heavy games like basketball or chess, you win or lose. In golf, you are under or over par, and success is clearly defined. Investing's a lot different, though. Consider a fund manager who was down just 10% in 2008. By relative measures, this is an enormous success. He beat the benchmark by an incredible 2,800 basis points. But in more practical terms, this could still be construed as a failure. After all, you can't buy a house or food with relative returns, and even a small loss in relative terms can be quite dramatic in absolute terms. Should this sort of performance be considered success? Turning our attention to the number of trials question, consider trying to judge the talent of a basketball player based on a single three-point shot. 
Most anyone with sufficient arm strength will make a lucky three-pointer from time to time, but the strengths or weaknesses of any individual player become apparent only as they take hundreds of shots. Asset managers, whose careers typically last between 20 and 30 years, take a very limited number of shots if we consider one year to be the shortest length of time against which performance is typically considered. There are currently around 7,000 mutual funds and a roughly equivalent number of hedge funds. If we assume that these managers have a 50-50 chance of being above or below a benchmark in any given year, we could assume that there would be 420 managers who could be expected to outperform the benchmark for five years in a row even if the whole affair was left entirely to chance. 14 fund managers would be expected to beat the benchmark a full decade in a row, a feat that has rarely been achieved in practice. Apologists who point to a, hand few, a few handfuls of successful investors over time, which we'll call the, hey, what about Warren Buffett argument, would do well to remember just how frequently even a totally skillless endeavor would be expected to produce consistent winners. If anything, the evidence points to successful processes attending to things like value and momentum as being the secret sauce of sustained success more than the innate gifts of a given individual. By all three measures, investing has strong components of luck. Success can be achieved by accident, performance measures are hazy, and iterations are limited. So let's talk a little bit about baseball. You know I love to use stories and you know I'm a big Cardinals fan. So let's talk a little bit about baseball to try and continue this conversation around luck and skill. So marked by significant rule changes, baseball's modern era began in 1903. Over the 38 years that followed, seven different players batted 400 for a total of 12 instances. Rogers Hornsby, Ty Cobb, and George Sisler all had multiple 400-plus average seasons. The last big leaguer to hit over 400 was Ted Williams in 1941. In the more than 70 seasons that have followed, no, play, no player in either league has hit over 400, and Rogers Hornsby's modern-era record of 424 is expected by many to never be broken. The reasons for this untouchable record have nothing to do with the absolute skill of the players involved. Because let's be honest, if anything, turning the Albert Pujols or Mike Trouts of the world loose on the pitchers of yesteryear would be a bloodbath. They are almost certainly better in absolute terms. The difference is rather that the rising tide of improved nutrition, better training, and sturdier equipment has raised all boats. As Larry Suidro says, in many forms of competition, such as chess, poker, or investing, it's the relative level of skill that plays the more important role in determining outcomes, not the absolute level. The paradox of skill means that even as skill level rises, luck can become more important in determining outcomes if the level of competition is also rising. So hitters have improved, sure, but their improvements have slipped relative to the competition and a similar trend seems to be afoot in investment management. Just as the fame, notoriety, and money involved in baseball have given rise to greater talent, the investment management industry has long robbed more consequential industries, like medicine, of great young minds precisely because of the financial rewards involved. Charlie Ellis noted in the Financial Analyst Journal that over the past 50 years, 
increasing numbers of highly talented young investment professionals have entered the competition. They have more advanced training than their predecessors, better analytical tools, and faster access to more information. The unsurprising result, he says, is that the increasing efficiency of modern stock markets makes it harder to match them and much harder to beat them, particularly after covering costs and fees. So is it possible that Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch are to investing, what Ted Williams and Ty Cobb are to baseball? Could they be the last 400 hitters? The paradox of skill that some have posited theoretically, others have examined empirically, and the results really aren't that pretty. In Luck versus Skill in the cross-section of mutual fund returns, Eugene Fama and Kenneth French purport that there is only skill in the top two percentiles of managers they examined. Sebastian and Adaluri in their Conviction in Equity Investing paper find that the percentage of managers delivering skill beyond fees and expenses has fallen from 20% two decades ago to just 1.6% in 2011. Asked to summarize his work, Sebastian says that more than 98 of 100 institutionally oriented equity investment products of all styles spanning the globe have failed to add true value above fees and costs. But the decline in funds that show skill is not entirely attributable to the influx of talented young Ivy Leaguers uh, vying for a Bentley or a yacht. Sadly, much of what is labeled skill-based active management today is not active at all. Closet indexing, which I believe to be our industry's dirty little secret, as passive inactive clothing is called, leaves investors with the worst of all possible worlds, high fees without meaningful differentiation. And the problem is more widespread than most imagine. So a good friend of mine, Tom Howard of Athena Invest, found in his exploration of closet indexing that, quote, for the typical fund, low conviction positions outnumber high conviction positions by three to one. Dr. Wes Gray of Alpha Alpha Architect found that just 8% of ETFs and 23% of mutual funds differed meaningfully from their benchmarks. What's more, Gray reports that the more active a fund was, the more expensive it tended to be, with truly differentiated active management funds clocking in at an average of 128 basis points. The research is clear that the vast majority of actively managed funds don't differ meaningfully from their benchmarks, giving no possibility to exhibit skill. And those that do make investors pay handsomely for the the privilege. This combination of high fees and or low conviction almost ensures that a fund will look skillless, even if there are skilled but cowardly people on the team. Although there's, little more than a, uh, although there's more than a little luck involved in investing, research, some research suggests that skill does exist, but it can only be showcased when the manager has the guts to be different. So Martin, Kremers, and Pedahisto introduced the concept of active share in 2009, And this concept speaks to how greatly differentiated a portfolio is from the benchmark against which it's compared. They found that truly active managers, which is those by their definition with 60% or greater differentiation from their index, had outperformed historically and that greater differentiation tended to lead to greater outperformance. In a 2013 update on this research, they found that high active share portfolios outperformed dramatically 
from 1990 to 2009, and that these active funds had tended to hold up well during periods of crisis. As the researchers note, quote, I found that the most active stock pickers have been able to add value to their investors, beating their benchmark indices by about 1.26% per year after all fees and expenses. Cohen, Polk, and Silhe found that a fund's best idea, as determined by position size, generated average annualized outperformance of a whopping 6% a year. Even more importantly, they found that performance decreased in a stepwise fashion as position size decreased. Much of the conversation around active managers' historical underperformance has drawn the erroneous conclusion that these managers have no stock-picking skill. To the contrary, it would seem that much of what besets active managers is not the ability to successfully pick stocks, but the courage to pick them in a concentrated enough dose that they will lead to successful outperformance. We will begin to see more skill from active managers as we start to see more guts. So, in the end, is investing a game of luck or skill? Uh, unfortunately, the answer is yes. There is evidence, uh, absolutely, that there's a great deal of luck in investing, and that has to be accounted for when deciding how to invest and what fee to pay. Uh, but we also see that there's evidence of skill in certain active managers, uh, but eat only if they have the courage to be truly contrarian, to truly differentiated, and that courage seems to be in short supply <clears throat> and can be uh, uh, undone by expensive funds. So the, the takeaway for me is this. Active investing can be a sensible way to invest uh, if it is si systematized, if it is high conviction, uh, and if it is low fee. Passive investing is also a very sensible way to invest, but you should never pay active fees for closet benchmarking. Uh, I think that this is, again, our industry's dirty little secret, and I'm happy to do my small part to shine a light on people who are defrauding investors uh, by charging them a lot, but giving them very little. Again, I'm Dr. Daniel Crosby. Uh, the thing that's weird about this podcast is that I'm sort of speaking into the abyss. So I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you think. Reach out to me on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. Find me on LinkedIn where I'm quite active. Uh, shoot, me, uh, shoot me a message either of those places. Tell me what you think about all this. If you want to support the podcast, there's three primary ways that you can do that. The first is that you can share this with a friend. Um, I monitor my listens uh, very scrupulously, <clears throat> and my self-worth rises and falls in direct proportion to how many people uh, listen to this podcast in a given week. So share this with a friend and make me feel better about myself. A uh, second way uh, is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then finally is to feed my kids to make me $3 richer by buying a copy of The Laws of Wealth, uh, easiest places on Amazon, or by pre-ordering a copy of my new book, The Behavioral Investor, which I think you're going to love. Uh, thank you for the support. We will see you next week.